0: Welcome to Technology Forward, where we explore trends and developments in the additive manufacturing industry. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening. Some of the materials used in 3D printing are generally either not very or even not easily degradable in the environment. Some developers and manufacturers, though, are working to develop materials that are more eco-friendly as well as delivering the mechanical properties designers look for. I'm here today with Dr. Raymond Whitecamp, founder of the Berkeley-based 3D printing startup, Polyspectra. We're going to talk about a new material that is being used to create engineering-grade parts through 3D printing and how it can help shrink the carbon footprint. So thank you for being with me here today, Raymond.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me, Leslie. It's exciting to be here.
0: Okay, so first of all, let's talk about this new material that you have. So tell me a little bit about, I guess you pronounce it CORE-alpha.
1: Yeah, CORE-alpha. What can it do? Sure. So C-O-R is the acronym for a new family of photopolymers that we invented at Polyspectra, and it stands for cyclic olefin resin. And so CORE-alpha is the the first one of those materials. Uh, We also have a material called core black, which is very similar, um, but black, but, but I think core alpha is sort of the, the more interesting one in terms of bringing new capabilities. The fundamental chemistry of what's going on in our cyclic olefin resins is based on a reaction called olefin metathesis, okay. and the uh, catalysts inside uh, the, the chemistry is is based on something that my PhD advisor, Bob Grubbs, won the Nobel Prize for in 2005. So I didn't invent anything related to <laughs> what he won the Nobel Prize for, but what I invented when I was a graduate student at Caltech working for him was a version of what people call the grubs catalyst uh, so a version of this nobel prize winning catalyst that would only be activated when you shine light on it and so the from a chemistry perspective what this offers the field of stereolithography or that photopolymerization, or resin printing whatever <laughs> you know, want to call it everyone's got their own sort of acronym for their process but what this offers is is actually a completely new chemical mechanism and manifold uh, for that type of printing. And so this is, you know, in contrast with the the two main mechanisms over the 40 years since Chuck Hull invented serial lithography in 1983 or a photo radical system or a photo acid catalyzed system. And this offers A third mechanism that has uh, a number of benefits on the chemistry side that the main value proposition in terms of how this would impact designers and engineers is really around uh, being able to access incredibly rugged materials that have very high working temperatures, very high toughness, uh, very uh, high chemical resistance and uh, weatherability and durability. So Core Alpha was was the very first one. And in a a long product line that we have, you know a few things announced and many more things kind of coming down the pike. And so from the outside looking in the printer, you know looks just like any other printer. And actually at Polyspectra, we don't make the printer. So we partner with the hardware partners and, but chemically what's going on on the inside is is completely different. than what's happening in a traditional resin. And that enables us to achieve properties that have been elusive (laughs) for the the field of stereolithography for the last 40 years.
0: Now for this particular Core Alpha, um, what would you say are the best applications for this material given its high heat ability, its high strength capability, Mm -hmm. those other factors?
1: Yeah, there's, there are a number of things that we're working on. I, I guess the thing that ties them all together is, you know, you know, the best applications tend to be ones with the the harshest use requirements. So they're all some kind of what you might call like industrial additive manufacturing application.
0: Like so
1: aerospace. yeah, automotive, automotive aerospace and both the, you know, commercial aerospace as well as defense aerospace and also both actual outer space (laughs) um, and, you know, low earth orbit applications we've been qualifying as well as, you know, like commercial aero components. Uh, We've been doing a lot in uh, electronics and connectors and enclosures for you know some of those would end up in in cars and airplanes but uh, consumer electronics devices as well robotics and automation has been another really important application area for us and yeah so things you know where i guess another like we're not very useful for stuff where you know sla printing Is sort of already good enough, you know? Like, we're not, we're not like if you just want, you know, a nice prototype that is like gonna sit on a shelf or you're just gonna kind of test something and then throw it away and you don't care about the properties. I'm much more interested in and the places that we can really help people are in additive manufacturing, not necessarily 3D printing. And like direct end use components is is most of where we've spent our effort. Although we have, there's a big market in what people call rapid tooling.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And Mm -hmm. actually uh, a very large fraction of the Polyspectra customer base is using Core Alpha for some form of rapid tooling. So um, making mold inserts, for example, for injection molding or blow molding. So rapid tooling is an important one as well, but I'm personally the most passionate about the you know direct production of end-use parts where you know now in one step you can you know make what you want in the shape that you want it with properties that will be durable enough to be safe for you know an end-use consumer grade product all, all kind of in one step.
0: Now, one of the issues with a lot of photopolymers like that is that either they degrade over time or they yellow over time or something. Mm-hmm. Do you stop that light interaction process?
1: So it is a tricky thing with photopolymers uh, and it's, it's tricky for everyone, regardless of the mechanism, in part because you're using light to cure them in light. the first place. So a lot of the things that you would do to... Uh, let's say like a thermoplastic, where you'd like, you know, fill it with black pigment and all kinds of UV blockers and things like that. You know, you you can't really attenuate all the light in a photopolymer because you want to use the light to, to trigger the polymerization. So there are aspects of that degradation that are, I would say, universal. It doesn't really matter which resin chemistry you're doing. Right. I would say that we are definitely better than average resin in that regard. And the part of it is that we're starting from really amazing properties. So we start from, you know, very, very high tensile strength and, you know, ductile failure, you know, and really high working temperature and no, almost no moisture absorption, which can play a role in degradation. So, you know, some of these degradation processes are catalyzed by you know, light and oxygen and moisture. And so if you have really low moisture diffusion, that can help. So I would say, yeah, we're better than the average bear in terms of the the UV degradation. And then actually, we've also come up with some really creative solutions where we've partnered with various coatings companies to just completely eliminate this entirely. And one of the more recent ones that's really exciting is with with a company called Seracote. And we did this really fun partnership after meeting them at Rapid a little under a year ago, where we showed that they, they have this really rugged coating. And they said, well, hey, we, we have, you know, we have the most rugged coating, you have the most rugged material, you know, let's combine these things together. And th- we started with the one of the product lines of theirs that was the best at uv mitigation Mm -hmm. and so actually we we coated it with this uh black c-series uh you know cerakote uh you know spray coating and even though it's a spray paint it's very thin so it it doesn't actually change the dimensions of the part very much and then we put it in a quv chamber which is like this like hot and humid weathering chamber and nothing happened to it and we ran it for i think the first time point was a thousand hours which was kind of their first initial checkpoint but actually we just nothing happened to it so they just put it back in and it's it's still been running so we're just going to keep running it Mm. until until something bad happens so that you know maybe a coating might not be the best solution for every application, but that's one where we, we've we combined this sort of best-in-class coating system with a partner with our best-in-class thermomechanical base material to, to unlock, you know, super, super durable and weatherable uh, components.
0: And given all of that, what kind of a carbon footprint does it
1: have? That it's a good question. So we're The way that I think about this, and I've spent a lot of time working at the intersection of sustainability and additive manufacturing, there there are a number of different components to calculate the sort of total life cycle energy of it. The two most important ones when you're thinking about 3D printing versus, let's say, injection molding would be the the process energy what is the energy that is being used to set the shape of the material so in a in a molding press that would be like the energy of you know keeping the mold hot and uh you know bringing the this very heavy press together with pneumatic power and high high heat in a we mostly do dlp uh, printers, so so in that sort of category of stereolithography, in a DLP printer, that that would include the you know the electricity draw of the printer. In the specific study that we did, where we were benchmarking this, and we've been funded by the U.S. Department of Energy, um, in particular the Advanced Manufacturing Office, to study uh, some of this. In both in the past and, and actually they just granted us a, a new new grant. So we're putting everyone's tax dollars to, to good use here, but, um, but sorry. So back to the two pieces. So there's the process energy to be fair. If you're going to um, do molding versus printing, then you have to include whatever the, the post process might be. Right. So for core alpha, we actually, after you print the parts, we bake the parts in an oven for about two hours and this for to get to the high working temperature of core alpha where the glass transition of this material is about 170 c we that's almost sort of necessary by definition so the process energy for the core alpha would be the uh, power draw of the printer plus the oven and then versus this you know injection molding press so what we we measured based on studying this what and having some literature reports of the uh, what are the the energy consumption of injection molding was that actually the printing uh, printing core alpha, the total process energy is between 50 and a hundred times lower (laughs) than an injection molding press. So that's
0: with the baking.
1: Yeah. Even with the oven because it's, it's just like a static, once you get the oven up to temperature, it's not a big deal. Whereas in the molding press you know, you, you sell presses by their tonnage, right? So they, they weigh a lot and they have to stay very hot and, you know, have pneumatic pistons Mm -hmm. to drive them. So there, there's really a lot of process energy there. So basically, you know, printing our stuff um, in this case, the, the printer that we benchmarked it was a a origin printer, which is now part of Stratasys. um, And that was, between one and 2% of an injection molding press. So 50 to hundred times more energy efficient. So now if you think about um, a typical injection molded part, so I, I I had the fun opportunity to explain this to, to Bill Gates once, and I was showing him some, some Legos, which are ABS plastic. I said, okay, Bill, the, the a third of the carbon footprint of this Lego brick came from that step where you had to mold it into the shape of the Lego, right? So if, in terms of that perspective, you could save uh, and we'll get to the next layer of things, which is the embodied energy of the material. But in terms of just the process energy, you could basically eliminate a third of the total carbon footprint of uh, this uh, polymer product. Uh, granted a very simple example by switching from molding to printing. So that one's a little bit easier and more head to head. Where it gets a little bit more complicated is now you have to start to think about what's called the embodied energy of the material. So here's where, you know, you say, okay, well, what's the uh, equivalent uh, kilograms of CO2 emitted per kilogram of plastic, right? Or polymer, right? Okay. So So, something like polyethylene or polypropylene, which is, you know, milk jugs, plastic bags, things like that, those are actually incredibly efficient. They have very low carbon footprint because the ethylene and propylene come from there's you sort of get them for free when you're on your way to drill for oil.
0: They're in the headspace.
1: And yeah, so compared to polyethylene or polypropylene, the the total embodied energy of core alpha is quite higher, uh, quite a bit higher, but compared to more engineering plastics like ABS or, you know, Delrin or peak, those are now, you're talking seven, eight, nine, 10 kilograms of CO2 equivalents created in the process of making those polymers. Anyways, I I realize it's a really long answer, so I'll try to wrap it up. But the the bottom line, the sort of takeaway is, depending exactly on what polymer you're comparing to, we can save between a third of the total embodied energy of that polymer component to two thirds. So between, let's say, 30 and 65% comparing on what you're benchmarking it to. And so that's actually really huge. And just in the U.S., if this were widely adopted, that could be, you know, a few percent of all U.S. energy if you were starting to switch to, Mm -hmm. you know, something like our process versus uh, injection molding. The it's really it's really quite a large number. And I think part of why most people don't even think about it or know about it is just that I think most people just don't really know how things are made (laughs) Uh, yeah yeah. and the even the even bigger carbon footprint opportunity and this is where um, I've been working a lot on this initiative called that we call massless which is the mission to use digital manufacturing to reduce global energy usage by 25 percent by 2050 now just this sort of thing I just described is not going to get to 25 percent just heads-to-heads, you know, print versus injection molding. But where 3D printing and digital manufacturing will, Mm -hmm. and this is the whole idea of massless and the massless mission is, now, if you could do that locally, or in fact, even if you could just do it on the same continent as the end user, (laughs) that's where you could start to save double digits of global energy usage. Because the other thing that most people don't appreciate is that you know, the components in your iPhone flew halfway around the world four or five times before it was fully assembled. Then they went to the warehouse, then they went to, you so yeah, the environmental footprint of moving mass around the world is, is massive. And, you know, in, in the U S 30, about 30% of all U S energy goes to transportation fuel Mm. of just moving stuff around. And so if you could, if you could start to, yeah.
0: Yeah. That's not thought about much.
1: Definitely. So that's where, you know, people call this like the virtual warehouse or the uh, distributed digital manufacturing, that piece of it, it's going to take the longest to get there because it really involves a total behavioral change on the part of the whole supply chain of the earth, (laughs) but the, the impact is, is insane and the scale of the energy savings are, are really, really massive.
0: Now, how about what happens when the product reaches the end of its life cycle? Is this material easily degradable or. So right.
1: Yeah. Right now we're mostly focused on use cases where you want the, the best way to optimize for the, the total like embodied energy and carbon footprint is to make something last forever. <laughs> so there's, okay. uh, it tends to be, a, there tends to be a trade-off between making something, you know, easily recyclable or biodegradable and also making it the strongest, toughest material of all time. So, yeah, so we are right now, we're mostly focused on, you know, the durability aspect of it and saving, saving energy on, let's say the front end of things rather than through more of like a circular approach. But we are working out a number of different end of life strategies with some of our partners and suppliers who have been making similar kinds of materials for, for many years. And we have, a f- we have a few collaborations much more on the kind of R and D side of things where we're thinking about ways that you might be able to, recycle or give like a second life to to the material but that is tricky and i think there's certain things that i guess the other thing i'd say about is, is we're also not interested in doing anything that is uh consumable so you know for example here here in berkeley there's a lot of people who say oh well you know, I don't use plastic. <laughs> and right. it's like, oh, well, wow, great. You know, I, you know, as a polymer chemist, I sort of giggle and it's like, yeah, okay. Don't you you know, no single use plastic. Okay. Let's not throw straws into the ocean or, or have like a grocery bag that you're going to, you know, end up in a landfill right away. This, this, like, I don't use plastic. is kind of like, well, you know, that your car is like half plastic. Do you know that like the airplane is plastic, Do you know, that when you go to the hospital, you're really going to want some plastic. So, so I think we're, yeah, we're much more focused on kind of the, these like long, you know, decades long, like use case scenarios rather than kind of consumables or, or disposable things. I think, you know, because a huge portion of the plastics that, that, you know we have on the planet are thermoplastics and can be recycled i think a lot of people equate like oh can this be recycled like oh then it must be sustainable and that that can be true if it actually is being recycled um and there i i certainly think that there are tons of amazing applications where we need like a circular economy approach Mm -hmm. to things and I'm you know friends with a lot of pioneers in that in that field people have worked you know their whole careers in polymer recycling like Mike Biddle Um, and it's really you know it's really important at the same time it doesn't it doesn't solve everything and you know and there are lot there are also lots of kinds of polymers that are uh, not easily recyclable because of you know the chemistry of and the material science behind the network and yet can still actually be more sustainable on a thinking about co2 or decarbonization or energy utilization than something that is recyclable so you really have to it's not like black and white oh it's recyclable it must be eco you know, it's not, it must be terrible. Uh, There's actually really a lot of nuance and, um, and it can be, yeah, incredibly complex.
0: Okay, so let's switch over a little bit to the design side of things. Yeah. Given the characteristics of this material, are there any specific challenges in designing with it that a mechanical or an electrical engineer needs to ponder?
1: Yeah, I guess I would say we've worked really hard to fit our, let's say, design requirements kind of well within the realm of what would be normal kind of design for DLP okay. um, in general. So, you know, um, there are certainly, you know, you might want slightly different kind of support strategy with our material than with like a really brittle acrylate um, where, you know, you might want kind of like different touch points or more of like a lattice type support structure. I would say, yeah. So like we're definitely like within the sort of normal design roles of what people are used to in DLP or the, this kind of like upside down, you know, SLA uh, mm-hmm. printing, which you know, is a little bit more restrictive than a, than a top-down system, but then you kind of have different benefits on the materials that are available. Um, I would say the one thing that is uh, a little bit challenging in terms of design is it's a little tricky if people want to do really super, super thin, super tall structures with our material, because it's, it hasn't, reached its full strength in out of the printer and it gets its full strength in the oven you know it's not usually something that gets in the way of us engaging with customers who are familiar with dlp printing or sla printing uh so but that that might be sort of one of the current kind of drawbacks versus like a a standard acrylate is just like the uh, really, really thin, high aspect ratio features are maybe a little bit tricky.
0: I think that's just a consideration, given the fact that the material gets its hardness once it's been baked. So, yeah, that's the factor you kind of have to keep in mind: is whatever you're designing, recognize that there's this additional step that's mm-hmm. going to finally deliver
1: the exactly you're
0: looking for.
1: Right, right. So, yeah, we work really hard to have like build a process where. It goes through both of those steps and maintains, you know, really, really high accuracy. If you're really, really thin, it makes it kind of tricky to do that because you're so susceptible to any kind of deviation. So, does
0: the material shrink at all during baking, like metals?
1: No, do. yeah, no. Actually, we have one of the things that is um, uh, this is certainly not planned on our part, but it turned out to be remarkably valuable. Uh, when comparing to especially uh, photoradical resins is we have almost no volumetric shrinkage in our process and so the some of that just comes from the nature of the polymerization mechanism uh, which is called ring opening metathesis polymerization and anyways it's maybe too nerdy but, but but basically the we can get one of the f- fundamental limiting factors to accuracy in stereolithography broadly is the the shrinkage of the photopolymer. And there are ways that you can try to work around it, but there, there's kind of a fundamental floor to that, that is uh, related to it's called random noise shrinkage, but the, um, that's something that, again, we didn't we didn't sort of plan for it to be that way. But as we started to get more involved in this space, we discovered that um, this really low shrinkage was enabling us to print parts with much better dimensional stability than a traditional acrylate resin. Okay. We actually came up with a new product um, that we're starting to roll out now called Core Cure. Where we um, we have sort of a workaround for people who just have a normal oven, where we can actually sort of protect the part and just bake it in a normal oven as well. So yeah, we're trying to trying very hard to not uh, make the let's say accoutrements of <laughs> the print process to be annoying or prohibitive. Our resin, our process is something that is meant to be. Used in a you know manufacturing setting, a commercial setting, an R and D setting. We're definitely not in a form factor to have people print in their home or print in their office. It is like needs PPE and respected kind of chemical safety protocols. It's much more of like a serious uh, engineering resin. But again, most of the customers that we're focused with are you know at the cutting edge of additive manufacturing and and doing these things in their, you know, factories or, or kind of R&D centers. We, um, yeah, we're, tr- we're trying to make it accessible. It, it's not quite ready for people to print in their garage with, <laughs> but we're, 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 we're working towards that. The, yeah, the three printers that, that we run on that we've sort of publicly announced right now are the, all this, the printers from Asiga, um which are all like dlp 385 nanometer dlp systems um about a month ago we announced with uh, stratasys for the origin one uh at rapid which is a really fun announcement uh and then we also there's a there's one printer from envision tech that's now called e-tech that that we support uh called the e1 so uh there's many more coming down the pipeline but unfortunately for this recording i can't reveal who's next but we'll have a a few more out before the end of the year which is really fun
0: any final thoughts
1: final thoughts my final thoughts are i'll share something that's i'm excited about okay which is so rapid this year was in detroit it was really fun to have a lot of the auto manufacturers come because it was so nearby, you know, they, they brought a lot of folks much more than in in past years, but what I will say I'm really excited about with additive manufacturing is I finally really feel like this is a true ecosystem and it's, it's, you know, when we first got into this, so obviously in the early days, it was sort of like, are you 3D systems or Stratasys? <laughs> like right. There were sort of only two, two choices. And it's like, um, and then it's kind of like evolved, you know, a little bit, but when we first started in this space, you know, there the, the only printer, for example, that would allow anyone to use third-party materials was the Autodesk Ember. it it didn't live very long artists, you know, a software company and they had a, you know, this idea that the printer would drive more people to use the fusion 360 software. Um, But it, it was short lived and the, the, the uh, you know, they decided to focus on the software, but what they did do was they really sort of shifted the conversation because now everyone was saying, wait, this huge player, you know, Autodesk is like, has an open printer, we're gonna to have to have open printers to compete. So one, I mean, yeah, on that, on that direct comment, I think now it's the, the deal was fully sealed when Stratasys bought Origin and then said, hey, actually we're keeping it open. Uh, and uh, you know, obviously Stratasys has for other product lines, you know, they're not open. So that I think was really the sign of an inflection point around that particular topic. But yeah, in general, and and I think and I think actually everyone wins in this. Everyone wins when the customer gets what they want, right? And right. so right now, you know, if you're Ford, like no one's going to stop Ellen Lee at Ford, who runs you know the a big three D printing team there, from picking like her favorite printer, her favorite software, and her favorite material for that particular application. And and I think that the this idea that now there's There's really an open marketplace. There's an open ecosystem. There's all these people jumping into these different kind of niches that I just find so fun and invigorating. And, you know, they're, whether it's like, you know, a service bureau that, yeah, they print parts of the service, but they also, you know, specialize in this like super niche kind of application area or, Or companies that, yeah, they have some software thing, but you can't even buy the software thing because they plug it into the other manufacturing software thing. It's just mind blowing to me that that it's such. um, I feel like there's a much more healthy, I don't know, biosphere ecosystem to to the space now, and I I personally find that really energizing, and I feel like it's. You know, it's more fun. It's more collaborative. There's a lot less of this kind of, oh, there's a, you know, a couple big players. And if you're sort of, it, it, it feels less sort of competitive to me and more collaborative, I guess, would be what I'm excited about. So
0: that's a that's, very encouraging phase and I hope it continues.
1: Yeah, me too. Industry.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Well, that's all the time we have here, Raymond, but I so appreciate all your time and, and all your information. It's, it's been great.
1: Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show.